The scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 29. Please follow along on the screen, the bulletin, or your own Bible. Starting in verse 1, we read, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of God. Great. Thank you, Betty. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you again. If you are at the community center or online, welcome. Uh, if you are visiting us for the first time, it's really great to have you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the elder pastors here uh, with Watermark. Why don't we um, pray together? We'll just pray briefly, and then we'll dive into this passage together. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we haven't come just for a pep talk we haven't come just to hear uh, a little bit of advice for our lives. We've come to hear from you, the living God, the majestic and awesome and glorious one. God, as we look at this wonderful passage in Jeremiah 29, won't you speak to us? God, I pray you'll speak to every one of us here at Ebenezer, every one of us at the community center, those at home. God, won't you drive your word into our hearts and give us a vision for what you've called us to and the life you've called us to live in this city. Why you've placed us in Hong Kong for such a time as this. 
God, I pray that these won't just be the words of human ideas or thoughts. This will be your word, God, coming from your heart. Speak to us, we pray, in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you have ever received an unexpected letter or maybe a surprising email. In 2011, I one day received a surprising email out the blue um, from a lady, that a real estate agent that had previously helped Claire and I buy a little apartment in Cape Town. And the email went like this. The subject line was in capital letters said, offended. And then this was the email. This is a screenshot of the actual email. It says, hi, Kevin. You sent me a Twitter response from a photo you have found of me. I take great offense at what you've said on your Twitter post to me. You profess yourself to be the greatest follower of God. Well, I don't think so. After what you've posted on your Twitter wall, you're a false person. Erica, P.S., send regards to your wife and family. No, she didn't say that fast. There wasn't any uh, regards being sent. And what had happened was that in my very short-lived Twitter account, someone had hacked my account and sent a message to a whole lot of contacts saying, I found this embarrassing photo of you and I'm going to post it online. Ha, ha, ha. And this person had received this and was very upset uh, about this supposed picture I had found of her. Today we are starting this series looking at the book of Daniel. And we're not actually going to get into Daniel today. We're going to start Daniel 1 next week. We're going to look at this passage in Jeremiah 29 because it kind of sets up the context of what's happening in the book of Daniel. And as far as surprising or bizarre letters go, Jeremiah 29 is one of the most bizarre letters that anyone would have received. Um, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is a very, very famous verse in the Bible. And it's certainly a favorite for Christians who love making Christian merchandise. You know, t-shirts and coffee mugs and coasters and notebooks and pens and all sorts of other things. Because this verse says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for peace and not for evil. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And so Christians throughout the ages have loved this verse. It's one of those verses we attach to all sorts of things as a kind of promise of God's kindness to us. The only problem is that if those mug manufacturers or t-shirt manufacturers actually knew the context and the plans that God had for his people, they might start looking for another verse. Because what were the plans that God had for his people? Well, there was something like this. Israel's arch enemies, the Babylonians, are going to march into Judah, siege the, the Jerusalem, destroy the city walls, burn down all the buildings, raise the temple to the ground, burn it flat, steal all the articles out of the temple, anything of gold or silver, and then march the people of Israel back to Babylon where they will serve their arch enemies as slaves for the next 70 years. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. These are not the kind of plans that Israel wanted. Now the reason why this is happening is because for hundreds of years, The nation of Israel, particularly the the southern kingdom of Judah, has been in constant rebellion against God, constantly um, denying Him, rejecting Him, going their own way. And God has sent prophet after prophet warning them against their tolerance of sin and their lack of repentance, but to no avail. They don't want to listen. 
And so Isaiah 30 captures this. Look at what Isaiah 30 says. It says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust will be your strength. But you were unwilling. You said, No, we will run away on horses. Therefore you will run away as exiles. You said, We will ride on swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers will be swift. God's calling his people back to him, and they say, no thanks, we think we'll look after ourselves. And the consequence of this is utterly disastrous. Friends, maybe just as a side note here, you may be here this morning and think, if only those Christians knew what is going on in my life, if only they really knew. I know how this game works. I arrive at church on Sunday, I speak the right language, I say the right things, and nobody has a clue. Friends, God says that he will not be mocked. You can't sow or invest in destruction without getting a return on that investment. You sow to destruction, you'll uh, yield destructive patterns of life. And that's what's happening here. Having invested in destruction, they're getting a return on their investment. And as is always the case, it always is more than what they bargained for. And so because of Judah's constant rejection of God, God has brought the Babylonians against them. And the Babylonians are his instrument for judgment and discipline. You may remember this is what the whole book of Habakkuk is all about. We started preaching through it a few years ago. And so the Babylonians come and they overthrow Judah and they take these people back to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, does this in three stages. The first one is 605 BC. The second one, about nine years later, 598 BC. And then the second one, 10 years later, 586 BC. And in the second instance, what he does is he comes and he takes the king and the queen and all the cultural and political and economic elites He removes them from Jerusalem and he takes them back to Babylon and there he introduces them into a re-education program. He wants to um, re-educate them according to Babylonian values and customs and belief, to indoctrinate them in their ways. And that's how Daniel, that we're going to look at next week, ends up in Babylon. He works in the kind of palace and so Nebuchadnezzar takes him back to Babylon and there he starts working uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar installs his own puppet king on the throne in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Zedekiah. But soon Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and says, I'm going to do things my own way. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes a third time, 586 BC, and this time he finishes off the job once and for all. And the Bible tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, this last, this third time, He was absolutely ruthless. And so what he does is Zedekiah, this king, feels like, let's run away. And so in the middle of the night, he and his bodyguards find a gap in the wall, and they try and escape out of the city of Jerusalem when the Babylonians have besieged it. And and, uh, Nebuchadnezzar catches this king, and as punishment, what he does is he kills Zedekiah's children in front of his eyes, and then he pokes out his eyes so that the last thing that he sees, his lasting memory, is that of his own children being killed in front of him. And then after that, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem absolutely. He burns every building. He destroys the temple. He steals all the articles. Everything 
um, religious and sacred to the people of Jerusalem. He steals and takes it back to Babylon. And he marches the people of Jerusalem back to Babylon uh, and makes them his slaves, his exiles. One pastor, a man by the name of Stephen Rain, said it like this. It is impossible to exaggerate the trauma of the events that unfolded with the overflow of Jerusalem. Everything of value to these people, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, had been ripped away from them. And Psalm 137 captures some of the gravity of what they felt. Listen to what Psalm 137 says. The people of God are marched off to Babylon, and this is what they write. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hang up our lyres and our harps. For there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth and others laughter. They said to us, sing us one of those songs of Zion. The Babylonians are laughing at Jerusalem and said, hey, don't you guys like singing those Hebrew songs? Sing us one of your songs about how great God is. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done to us. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says this, every line of this psalm is alive with pain. God's people are in a foreign land being ruled by some people that they don't love and respect and their hearts are alive with pain because they are away from their homeland and in foreign territory. They are living as exiles in Babylon. What should God's people do when their address changes from Israel to the heart of the pagan district? Well, what we have before us is a letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles in Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar took the people to Babylon, he took all the cultural elites, as he said, but he left behind the poorest of the poorest. He left behind those that he thought were insignificant. And one of those is Jeremiah the prophet. So Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. It's all been destroyed. There's just smoldering buildings around him. The cities are ruined. But he writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And what does God want to say to them? Well, that's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. Now, throughout the Bible, Babylon is described as the symbol of all that is evil and pagan and wicked and wrong with the world. Remember Genesis 11, there's the Tower of Babel. That is the precursor to Babylon, where the people said, who is God? We'll be our own gods. Let's make a monument to our own glory. In Daniel chapter 4, there's Nebuchadnezzar. One day he comes out on the balcony of his house. He looks over Babylon, and this is what he says. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a testimony for the glory of my majesty? Everything about Babylon rings with power and arrogance, and it's the very heart of the city of man. And so what would God want to say? Well, in this letter, God says something very surprising, because he tells the people of Israel to make themselves at home in Babylon, because God in his sovereignty has sent them there so that God can build his city, the city of God, right in the heart of the city of man. 
in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar takes these people back to Babylon. But in a far greater sense, actually God is the one who sent them there, not as exiles, but as missionaries. God has sent his people there to build the city of God in the heart of the city of man. And that's the main point of Jeremiah's letter, is that their being in Babylon is not some cosmic mistake. It's not because God fell asleep one day and Satan quickly overcame him. It's not because Satan overcame God. God's people are in Babylon by his sovereign will. God is under control and therefore God can be trusted. And that despite how things appear, God has plans for his people even in the midst of Babylon. I have plans for you and purposes, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, plans for your prosper, plans to give you a hope and a future. But as God's going to say, this is only going to happen if you trust me, if you live radically faithful lives to me in the heart of Babylon as you surrender and submit to me. And friends, that's actually what the whole book of Daniel is all about. It shows us what does it look like to live as God's people in the midst of an ungodly world. Okay? Now, let's dive into this passage and see what it says. Before we do that, one last thing. God's letter to the people in Babylon says, You might be here because of some other agenda, but I've sent you here because I've got plans for your life. And friends, that's actually the same for us today. You may be in Hong Kong because your company sent you here for a year or two. You may have come to Hong Kong on a two-year contract. You may have come here to get some work experience or to travel the world for some other reason. But in another sense, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has sent you here because you've got a plan and purpose for your life. God has sent you here to this great city, the Pearl of the East, this fragrant harbor, as a missionary to build the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And so let's see what God says to his people here. Three things we're going to see today. The first one God says is, put down your roots. Put down your roots. Look at what God says in verse 4 to 9. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat of their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. When the Israelites first went to Babylon, uh, a bunch of the religious leaders were saying, just relax, God's just letting off some steam. He just needs to calm down. We'll only be here a year or two, and then we'll go back to Israel, and everything will be fine. And what they were really saying was, just sit on your hands, sit tight, don't get too involved in the city, let's just stay in our Jewish bubble here on the waters of Babylon, and pretty soon things will go back to the way that we've known them. But Jeremiah writes, and he says, no, 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 don't let those false prophets deceive you. God is going to plant you here for 70 years. And he's asking you to take root here. And the reason is because God has got plans for you. God wants you to know things about him and about yourselves that you'll only discover as you put down your roots and as you plant yourselves here in the city of Babylon. God wants you to discover who he is and who you are, but you'll only find that out as you live lives of radical faithfulness to him, even in this ungodly world. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
then you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The problem with Israel is that they have not been seeking God. They've been seeking all sorts of other gods. That's right there in Babylon because they've gone their own way. And God says, as you put down your roots, as you, as you make yourself at home here, then you will find out what it means to be my people in this broken world. Friends, it's one thing to be faithful to God in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jewishness. You've got the temple, you've got the rabbis, you've got the symbols, you've got the Torah. No, that's one thing. But to be faithful to God in the heart of the city of man, the heart of Babylon, that's another thing altogether. But friends, isn't that true for us as well? It's one thing to be faithful to God, to sing of His covenant promises, to say, great is your name here on Sunday morning. You've got the band, you've got followers of Christ around you. But what about in the office place? What about in the courts of law? What about in home? What about in the classrooms? That's where it really comes. That's where God wants us to be the people of God, even in the midst of an ungodly world. That's where it really counts. And so look at what God says here. He says, put down your roots, build houses. How many of you know that if you buy a house and then 70 years time, everyone's going to leave, you're probably not going to get a good return on your house, right? The Babylonians are not going to pay top dollar for those houses when suddenly the market is flooded. There's plenty of houses on the market. It says, build houses, plant gardens, eat the produce, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply and do not decrease. Now, quick question. What does that remind you of? Where else in the Bible does God say, be fruitful and multiply? In? Genesis 1, right? The Garden of Eden. What's God saying here? He's saying, in a sense, I want you to bring Eden into Babylon. I want you, my people, to bring the kingdom of heaven on here on earth. God is saying, I want you to build the city of God right here, even in the midst of the city of man. Now, friends, what does that mean for us here in Hong Kong? Well, one of the phenomena of big cities is that so many people move into the city, into a big city like Hong Kong, in order to use the city for what we can get from it, rather than invest in the long-term good and health of the city. And so many people, we think, hey, I'm here. It's, uh, my company sent me here. It's an opportunity to grow personally or professionally. It's an opportunity to make some money before I go home. It's an opportunity to travel and see the world. All that without ex- contributing to the long-term health of the city. But what we see here is that what happens if we were to see ourselves not just as those who use the city, but as missionaries sent into the city for its well-being and for its good? What happens if God wants to send us to Hong Kong, not just for what we can get from it, but actually how we can contribute towards it? And what that means is that Christians, actually, we need to learn how to be a countercultural influence in the heart of the city. Where we're not just using the city for our own benefit, we're not isolating from the city in our own little Christian bubbles, but neither are we so part of the city that we adopt its values as part of our own. Rather, what God wants us to do is to go into the cities and yet stay distinct from the city because we have our own Christian values, even as we live in the city and live for its well-being and its benefit. Tim, Tim Keller says this, Christians should demonstrate what an alternative human culture one that's based on the gospel, can look like. Christians should demonstrate in the heart of Hong Kong what does it look like to use money and sex and power, not just 
for our own benefit, not to use others how to prop ourselves up, but how do we use our money? How do we use our power for the well-being and the blessing of others? Friends, obviously our city, Hong Kong, has gone through massive changes. Everything's up in the air. And uh, there's so many questions that are on people's minds. And one of the questions that, as Hong Kongers, many of us are asking is, where is my future secure? Should I, be, should I stay here? Should I look to move? Now, friends, I want to say that's not the wrong question to ask. That's not a bad question. As Christians, we should be responsible. We've got to be responsible for our families. We've got to be responsible for our aging parents. And so that's not a bad question to ask. But maybe one of the questions that God wants us to ask in addition to that is, God, are you possibly asking me to stay here for the long-term well-being and the blessing of this city? God, is it possible that you're asking me to be here and to contribute to the long-term good of the city? And you know what? That's going to cost, uh, involve great sacrifice. That's going to involve great cost. But remember what John the Apostle says about Jesus in John chapter 1. He says, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The actual Greek this is Jesus pitched his tent amongst us. Jesus didn't just helicopter into Jerusalem at age 30 and say, right, let's get this show going, right? Jesus takes on our nature. Jesus takes on flesh and blood. And Jesus is born into this world as a human being with all the brokenness, all the insecurity, all the fears, all the dangers. Jesus came and pitched his tent as were. He laid down his roots. He got involved in the heart of what is going on so that Jesus could really bring the kingdom of God to the kingdom of the world. That Jesus could bring the city of God into the city of man. Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. And Jesus says, as are his disciples, he says, come and be with me. Come and follow me. Come and become like me. Come and do the things that I did. Put your roots down in the city for its good. Okay? So put down your roots. Second thing is this. Jesus says, uh, Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city. Look at verse 7 with me. Jeremiah writes to these exiles in Babylon and he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your own welfare. Now, the word welfare here is the Hebrew word shalom, okay? And shalom uh, is, doesn't just mean peace. It means a holistic harmony um, that is involved in, that touches every area of our lives. So shalom means this harmonious flourishing, this well-being, personally and psychologically, so harmony within myself, spiritually, harmony with me and God, relationally, harmony with those in my life, even culturally and socially, harmony in society. And it's where all of life is marked by this fullness, this rest, this peace, this harmony that every human being longs for. It's the Garden of Eden. Now, one of the main points of Scripture is that the deep harmony, the soul rest that all of us long for, that we spoke about last week, this deep shalom that our hearts long for is never found apart from God himself. Remember our scripture last week? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The grand narrative of scripture is that we are created 
to be at shalom with God, but because of our sin, we've been cut off from God and we separated from Him. And now we live with a state of restlessness in our hearts. Remember Augustine's great quote, we were made for you, O God, and our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in you. And so look at what God says to the exiles who are living in the heart of the city of man, in pagan Babylon. He says, I've sent you there that you may seek the shalom, the peace, the prosperity of Babylon. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for us here in Hong Kong? God says to us, Watermark, I've called you to Hong Kong, not just to enrich yourselves, not just to get some experience. I've called you to seek the shalom and the blessing, the welfare of this city while we live here. What does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. The first thing it means is, on the one hand, it means proclaiming the gospel. This is the essence of who we are. We are a gospel-proclaiming community. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, that might sound bigoted and judgmental and arrogant, that we go out there telling everyone that we're right and that they're wrong. But that's not the heart of evangelism at all. The reason we want to tell people about the gospel is because of what Jeremiah says here. We want the shalom, we want the well-being, we want the peace of our city. And we know that there'll never be true peace apart from reconciliation with God. Remember what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you'll never have the peace of God without first being at peace with God. The reason we go and proclaim the gospel is because our city is so unrestful. Our city is full of restlessness and we long for our neighbors and our family and our colleagues and our friends to experience the deep shalom that God wants for them. And so we are a gospel proclaiming community. The only way for everyone or anyone to have real lasting peace is through believing what Jesus did on the cross, confessing our need for him and coming to him in faith and repentance. And so that's why at Watermark, mission is at the very heart of what we do because we're a gospel proclaiming community. But that's not the only thing God asks us to do because he also asks us to live out the gospel. In other words, we proclaim the gospel with word, but we also proclaim the gospel with deed. We, as Jesus did, we go out teaching and proclaiming who God is, but we also go out doing good to our city. Friends, we are called to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And that means that Christians, we work for the peace and the security and the justice and the prosperity of the entire city, not just Christian communities. It means that as citizens of heaven, Christians should be the very best citizens of Hong Kong. The very best citizens of Hong Kong. Because we walk in the footsteps of the one who laid down his life even for his enemies. Think about that for a second. God's called us here as citizens of heaven to be the very best citizens of Hong Kong. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, we were preaching through Matthew's gospel and we got to Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus is having a meal with some tax collectors and some uh, sex workers and a bunch of other people. And the religious leaders come to Jesus' disciples and they say, how can your rabbi be having a meal with those scumbags, right? With those people. Uh, Surely, how can Jesus associate with them? And Jesus says, this is the very reason I've come. I've come to bring peace to the city. I haven't come just to hang out with those that have got it all together. 
I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to bring wholeness and shalom to those that need it. Jesus says the reason he came is to bring shalom, his restorative, redemptive, healing shalom to the pain and the brokenness of our world. And friends, as challenging as it is, that's, why God, that's what God calls us to as well. And so what does that look like practically? Well, it means that as Christians, we're always looking for an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. It means the Uber driver, he's stuck with you. You've got 10 minutes with him, right? He's not going to go anywhere. Well, I guess he's got the steering wheel. Maybe he could go somewhere. Maybe he could hijack you and take you somewhere. But it means telling people about Jesus, the driver, the taxi driver, our neighbors. It means giving out Christian books to those. It means inviting people to outreach opportunities. We're always looking out for ways to help people find true and lasting peace. But you know what it also means? It means paying a fair and an adequate wage to those that work for us, whether those in our home or whether those in the office. It means paying and treating people with dignity and honor. It means foreign domestic helpers that work for Christians should be the most honored and respected foreign domestic workers in our city. Friends, it means rather than spending our entire budget on ourselves, maybe setting aside a portion to support and finance and underwrite those that are doing good work in our city and prospering and bring about the, the peace and the shalom of our city. It means extending grace and forgiveness to those that have hurt us or wronged us, seeking reconciliation. Friends, it means helping women that have been abused and used by men for their bodies to get out of the slavery of the sex industry and to find work and employment that is full of dignity and honor. Friends, it means um, opening up our lives and our hearts and maybe even our homes to those that are considered outsiders, those that are part of another ethnicity or another race, those that are part of a different socioeconomic bracket. It means maybe fostering vulnerable children in our city, maybe even adopting a child that doesn't have a family. It means coming alongside single moms and teenage moms and saying, I know your life is tough. And we want to come inside and be there for you and support you and to love you and do what we can to bring shalom and peace to your life. Friends, for some people, and Christians should be at the forefront of this, it means maybe even lobbying government or setting up a work tank or an NGO or some kind of program to ensure there's just and equitable laws and policies in Hong Kong. It means fighting for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers in our city. Tim Keller says this, and this is really profound. Now, I want us to think about this. As Christians, we don't just use the resources of the city to build a great big church. Actually, Christians use the resources within the church to build a great city. Let me say that again. As Christians, we don't use the resources of the city to build the church so that we can get a bigger and more powerful and stronger and more famous church. We're not trying to build our name. Actually, as Christians, we use the resources that God has given us to advance and cultivate the prosperity and the blessing and the shalom of our city. The goal of Watermark is not just to have a great church, it's to have a great city. And that's why God has planted us here. And so Jeremiah writes and he says, Seek the shalom, the welfare of your city, for in its welfare you will find your own. And isn't that amazing? That God says, the shalom that so many of us long for isn't found as we divorce ourselves from the city and live in our Christian bubbles and just work for a Christian organization and only have Christian friends. 
actually the shalom and the blessing that we long for is found as we work with God in the midst of our city and bring the kingdom of God to our world. As we join God in bringing the city of God to the city of man, in that very place is where we find the shalom and the blessing and the peace that we long for. Friends, you'll never find the peace that your heart longs for simply by going on holidays and sitting on the beach. You'll find it by joining God in what He's doing in this city as we join Him seeking the blessing of our city. Is that okay? Is that making any sense? Okay. I've got one last point. Let's see if we can revive it. Okay. So, firstly, put down your roots. Make this city home. Ask God, is this God, do you want me to stay here for the long haul? Secondly, seek the shalom, the, the wholeness, the, the blessing, the city of God in our city. Third thing is this. Look at what Jeremiah says. Pray for the city. Pray for the city. Look at the way that Jeremiah phrases it here. He says, pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. Now that language is almost priestly. Jeremiah isn't just saying, pray for the city. And he's certainly not saying, do what Jonah did. Remember Jonah, he goes to Nineveh and he tells them about God and the gospel. And then he retreats and he sits up on a hill and he kind of says, okay, God, let's see you nail these guys. And Jonah, if he prays for the city, he's praying that God will smite them, right? But what does God say to Jeremiah? He says, well, Jeremiah says to the, the exiles, pray on behalf of the city. It's almost like God is saying, these guys need my mercy and my grace, but they don't know how to call out to me, but you do. So why don't you pray for them on their behalf to me for my grace and my mercy? Isn't that incredible? Remember, friends, the Babylonians are Israel's arch enemies. They've just burnt down their city. They've pulled down the walls. They destroyed the temple. They've stolen all the goods. They've desecrated the holy place. And God, you want us to do what for them? You've got to be kidding, right? Friends, I know that some of us here are extremely frustrated, even angry maybe at what has happened in our city and the changes that have taken place over the last two years. And I must confess that as a foreigner, I don't, I, I carry the city so deeply in my heart but I know that I probably don't understand and feel it to the depth of many of us here. Friends, God asks us to pray on behalf of our city. And I know that's an incredibly difficult thing for some of us, maybe. But I want to ask you this. Do you think that you could possibly find it in your heart to trust the one who, when he was being nailed to the cross by his own enemies... And his enemies looked upon them with a smirk on their face. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when Jesus prayed that prayer, he wasn't saying, he wasn't just praying for a blanket amnesty. He wasn't just saying, God, let's just pretend this whole thing hasn't happened. He wasn't just saying, let's just sweep their sins under the rug. Jesus was saying, God, these people need your grace and your mercy, but they don't know how to call out to you. And so I'm going to call out to you that you, by your grace, will reveal yourself to them so that they will find you and call out to you for the grace and the mercy that they need. 
God, if you leave them to their own devices, they're in deep trouble. But they need your mercy and they don't know how to find you. So God, I ask you, won't you in your mercy, won't you pour out your grace in them so that they can find you? Friends, could we not pray the same thing for our city? Father, forgive them. They know not what you do. Pray to the city on behalf of it. Now, why does God ask us to pray? I want to give us three quick reasons. One reason is this, because prayer is powerful. You'll know this very famous, I've quoted mentioned many times. I think the 16th century, John Knox is a Presbyterian pastor in Scotland, and he used to pray in Queen Mary, the Queen of England. She says, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of England, right? Because prayer is powerful and it changes things. And prayer actually works. And when we pray for our city, God hears our prayers and he does things. Prayer is powerful. The second reason is this. You pray for what you love and you love what you pray for. It's very hard to pray for someone and despise them. It's very hard to pray for someone and then use and abuse them. You pray for what you love, but also as you pray for someone, you actually your heart grows for them. As God asks us to pray for the city, it'll grow our own heart for the city and even the areas of pain and the areas that we find hard. But here's a third reason. Because not only is God asking us to love and serve the city of Hong Kong, he's asking us to serve the city of Hong Kong in his way. Francis Schaeffer used to speak about doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. In other words, what he's saying is we can go out in the city of Hong Kong, we can set up NGOs and start schools and plant churches and set up charities, but if we do it without deep meditation on the gospel, if we do it without the dependence that comes from prayer, you know what will happen? We'll do it self-righteously. We'll do it with self-sufficiency. We'll do it in our own strength. And you know what? We'll probably cause more harm than good. Steve Corbett wrote a book 15 years ago called When Helping Hurts. And he spoke about how so many NGOs go into the cities and try and do things, but in the end they cause more damage than good because they do it in their own self-righteousness and their own strength. And Steve Corbett says that when we do that, we try to bring the kingdom of heaven to our world without the king. Friends, we need to be people that pray. In this great city of ours that has gone through so much in the last two years, Friends, it's easier to complain than to pray. It's easier to mock and scoff and laugh and ridicule and criticize than it is to labor and pray. It's easier to point with our finger than to get on our knees. But friends, what our city really needs is not just more charity. And it's not just Christians that are going out and doing random acts of kindness. It's not just Christians trying to be good people. What this great city needs is the kingdom of God. It needs the presence and the power of the once crucified but now resurrected Christ who sits in glory. Friends, what this city needs is the life-transforming power of the sovereign, majestic, glorious God, the God who gives life to the dead. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen as His church presences itself in the city, seeks the, the peace and the shalom of the city, but as we give ourselves to pray. Jeremiah writes this letter to the people of God in the heart of the city of man. And he says, go and put down your roots. Seek the shalom and the welfare and the peace of the city. Go and be people of prayer. May we do the same.
Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, God, we come before you this morning and we hear your word, Lord, that you call us to this great city, not just for our own welfare, not just for our own good. You call us here, God, not just to use the city, but to bless it. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray, come and stir our hearts, God, to love and serve the great city of Hong Kong, the fragrant harbor, Lord, the pearl of the east. We pray, God, that this city will be infused with the fragrance of heaven, Lord. Jesus, come and have your way. But first we pray, come and have your way in our own hearts, God. God, won't you come and shape us, Lord? Won't you come and form us? God, won't you come and make us more like you? God, we so need you here. Lord, I pray for every one of us this morning, whether we're at home, whether we're at the community center, whether we're here at Ebenezer. Won't you start to call us, God? God, we're convinced that you've called us here for such a time as this. It's no coincidence that we're in Hong Kong for this time, this season. God, won't you lead us? Won't you help us? Won't you speak to us, God? Help us to love our city and to serve our city. Help us, God, to bring the kingdom of God to the city of man. Christ, come and have your way, we pray. Amen.